man, G.K. Chesterton, a literary genius, once wrote the following. He said, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. <laughs> because people will grab a hold of the book of Revelation and say all kinds of fanciful, outrageous, and wild things. And it's very easy to do. It's very easy to read and study these book and there, this book, and there are so many things in it that you can draw out. If you're going to go down a, a spiritualizing, metaphorical path, you could draw out anything. All kinds of things. People taking the book of Revelation and using it to shore up their particular religious faith or, or particular cult because it's so full of just amazing pictures when you study it. So the question is, as we approach this book, as we have week in and week out now for the last several months, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid going into the book of Revelation and just getting caught up in the fancy and miss what God truly intends for us to understand? And I want to give you two study points, two very specific study points that we use and have used in our study and will continue to use in our study. And if you follow these points, it will really help in the study of Revelation, both now and in the future. If you come back to it again, maybe on your own, you're restudying it and considering it. Two notes. Number one, follow the literal flow. Follow the literal flow. As we've talked about through our study of Revelation, the best way to study this book is to go through it literally. To follow one chapter after the next and to see where everything falls in that context, in the historical context. Just as chapter 1 comes before chapters 2 and 3, so the revelation of Jesus glorified preceded the church age. John had that revelation first. And then, then he had the revelation of the church age in chapters 2 and 3. And just as chapters 2 and 3 come before chapters 4 and 5, so the church age precedes the rapture of the church and her presence in heaven. And if you missed those studies when we were back in chapters 4 and 5, you can pick up the CD, but we talked specifically about why the book indicates the church is in heaven. The church is actually there, present with the Lord in those two chapters. I learned back in kindergarten, by the way, that 2 and 3 always come before 4 and 5. I've never forgotten it. It's a very valuable thing to know. And just as chapters 4 and 5 precede chapters 6 through 19, so the rapture of the church precedes the tribulation that happens here on earth. See, it's very literal flow. Walk it out, follow it through. And then comes the millennial kingdom in chapter 20, after the tribulation period, because chapter 20 comes after chapters 6 through 19. Then after the millennial kingdom in chapter 20, we see the new heaven and the new earth of chapters 21 and 22, which will come then after the millennial kingdom. It's all very literal. It's all laid out for us. It's almost as if the book itself follows a divine outline. Where do you find that divine outline, by the way? Anybody know where that would be? Chapter 1, verse 19. Why don't we turn in our Bibles there? Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Well, Rick, it almost sounds like you're teaching this divine outline thing is doctrinal. Yeah. Therefore, Jesus says to John, write the things which you have seen, which would be Jesus glorified, chapter 1. And the things which are, which would be the church age, the things which are. For John, that was where he was in the church age. Write about the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the church age. And the things which will take place 
after these things, everything after the church age, beginning in chapter 4, the church caught up to be in heaven. Chapter 5, the church still there in heaven. And then chapter 6 through 19, that tribulation period. And during chapter 6 through 19, the church is not mentioned a single time. Suddenly it is a non-entity in the book of Revelation. One of the many reasons why I believe the church will not go through the tribulation. Because it's completely absent in the discussion of the tribulation in this book. And then, of course, following that, continuing with the after these things, after the church age, you have the tribulation, then you have the glorious appearing of Jesus in chapter 19, chapter 20, the millennial kingdom, chapters 21 and 22, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which we'll talk a little bit more uh, later on tonight. Now, there's a significant reason for following a literal reading of the book. For one thing, it's the easiest way to follow it. It's the easiest way to understand it. When I got that little concept in my head, suddenly, as I began to study and read Revelation, it just made sense. Oh, okay. You follow it through, and it's clear. When you try to jump through hoops, when you try to put chapter 4 after chapter 19, which doesn't make sense in a literary sense, when you try and do this, the book gets confusing. It gets hard to understand. It gets metaphorical, and you can make it say whatever you want. The Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm a simpleton. I'll admit it. I'm simple-minded. When God says, I have not destined you for wrath, but for salvation, I believe Him. I think, okay. That's good enough for me. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood... We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Again, I just believe it. Why? Because God said it. Because His Word declares it. God's wrath, or the day of the Lord, by the way, refers implicitly to that period of tribulation which we've been studying, also called the 70th week of Daniel. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 9. It's called the time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. And Dad, at this rate, we're going through these verses like wildfire. Have you noticed that? All right. But gang, this all speaks of this tribulation period and all these verses we just looked at. It speaks of God's righteous anger that's poured out on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Not poured out on a Christ-accepting saved believer. Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus at Calvary. And if I have to take any wrath, if I have to pay any penance, if I need to spend even 30 seconds in purgatory to pick up for some of those missed sins, then what I'm saying is the cross was insufficient to save me. And I don't believe that. I believe that the cross was all sufficient. That on the cross Jesus took the complete wrath of God. Everything that I deserve, He took on Himself. And when He did that, He secured for me protection, safety to be pulled out before the wrath comes down. Have we seen God's wrath occurring so far in our study? You can nod if you think we have. Some few of the things that we've read indicates wrath. (laughs) We've read about gang earthquakes to meteoric disasters to demon locusts and to executioner angels. I would call that wrathful. Revelation chapter 6 verse 16. The people, you may remember, cried out to the mountains and rocks and said, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? And as we saw back when we studied that, even the people alive on earth at that time will know that it's wrath that they are enduring. 
The fact is also, gang, that at this point, as we go into Revelation chapter 11 tonight, midway through the tribulation, 50% of the earth's population is dead. 50%. That's not including the raptured church. This is after the church is pulled out that by this point in the tribulation one out of every two people on planet earth has died in all that has been going on. Sounds like wrath to me. And we know that the only people actually sealed with any kind of protection are the 144,000 Jewish bondservants in chapter 7. Now in the Left Behind series I know that if you've read that you see that all the Christians are sealed too. That may be fanciful. All we know absolutely for sure, 100%, is what the Bible tells us, that there will be 144,000 Jewish believers who will be sealed. We know they're going to be protected. Everyone else, who knows, except for the Lord. So, it stands to reason that this is a time of great wrath, which again begs the following question, does the Bible assure believers that they will be saved from wrath? If so... If so, nod, that's good. <laughs> good. Then remember that as we continue our study tonight. Believers are protected from and safe from the wrath. So the first study note was follow the literal flow. The second, second study note, and this is equally important, pay attention to the parenthetical. Pay attention to the parenthetical. Parenthetical simply needs an interlude for additional information. And a parenthesis, if you will, that's stuck in as the story continues. For as we study this book, we're on a literal chronological flow, but there are occasional times where John says, oh, and by the way, oh, I saw a sign, I'm going to tell you about that, oh, here's some more information, and he will insert these things, and the question may come up, well, how do we know specifically that something's parenthetical? How do we know if it's not literal? How can we tell the difference? It's very simple in the book of Revelation. John tells you. He'll tell you. If it's a parenthetical statement, if it's some teaching that steps out of that chronological flow, John very clearly points that out so that we can see it. Otherwise, we're in the flow. Okay? Follow the literal flow. Pay attention to the parenthetical. In chapter 7, we paused. In the trumpet judgments to gain a parenthetical glimpse at the ceiling of the 144,000 and the tribulation martyrs who are coming into heaven. Does that just happen right there at that point? No, it is likely a picture of the tribulation martyrs, of people being martyred all the way through the tribulation, not just in the first half. But that martyrdom will continue, but it's a picture of them flowing into, coming into heaven. That was a parenthetical statement there, or a parenthetical section in that chapter. Last week, in chapter 10, we spent the whole of chapter 10 in a parenthetical teaching. What do you mean? John talked about this. Remember, he gave us a prophetic look at the Bible, at the Word of God. That bitter, that sweet-tasting book that also caused a bitterness in the belly. He's talking about something that's very important. Is it chronological? He's, no, he's telling us something about the Word. Something that was very important. And yet, we kind of step out of the flow for a minute. He does some teaching on this. We're right back into the flow. Tonight, tonight now, in chapter 11, we get another parenthetical description of some, some events that will happen across the final three and a half years of tribulation. Now, I, I began to understand this when I first bought my first Star Wars novel. This is back when the movie Star Wars first came out. I was pretty young at the time. It was, what, 77? And I bought the book that George Lucas had written. And I sat down to read it. And it was so fast-paced, for my mind as a kid at that time, there was a paragraph, 
in one place with Luke, and then there was a paragraph in another place with Leah and Darth Vader, and then there was a paragraph in another place, and within the first chapter, there were like seven or eight different locations suddenly that he was talking about, and I began to understand he had to do it that way because this was all happening at the same time. So you're going to see that from this point on in the, in the book of Revelation. You're going to see where John's going to talk about one thing, he's going to pull back and talk about something else. They're happening at the same time. And so the only way to do that is to say this is happening, and then this is also happening when that was happening. Okay? So chapter 11, we're going to see that. Probably more next week than we will even tonight. We're going to see the, this discussion of two witnesses. And those two witnesses are there for three and a half years. So they're there during the entire last half of the tribulation at the same time other things are happening, but chapter 11 is going to tell their story in its entirety just in that chapter. But we need to understand that they're still there, that that's going on throughout the last part of the tribulation period. Again, we'll get to that next week. So follow the literal flow and pay attention to the parenthetical and you will understand this book as we get through it. Now, how are you guys doing comfort-wise? Warm, cool, perfect? Perfect? You want to leave that thing blasting for a little longer? Okay, I want to see a show of hands who would like to keep it going a little longer. Show of hands who are ready to cut it off. Alright. A little longer group wins this time. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Did Moody have to deal with this? Spurgeon, did Spurgeon deal with this? Alright. It's freezing Yeah, it was pretty cold there. They had it all over us. All right, Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Let's get going. Then there was given to me, because we're going to cover an entire two verses tonight, we really need to move. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. All right, keep in mind tonight. We're in the middle of the tribulation. Somewhere between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, and John is told at this point, get a measuring rod. Get yourself a ruler, get a yardstick, and measure the temple. Now don't miss this, it's very important. This presupposes in this moment something of great significance. The fact that there is a temple in existence in Jerusalem at this time. The very mention of this, John, go measure the temple. John is not being told to measure something spiritual. He's not being told to measure something that's not there. He's being told, go measure the temple in Jerusalem. Go measure it. So it presupposes that the temple is there. Gang, there wasn't a temple in Jerusalem when John wrote the Revelation. It was gone. It had already been destroyed. Probably 25 years before. The temple wasn't there. Now, you may say, okay, wait, Rick, you're assuming a post-70 A.D. dating of the book. You're saying that the book was written after the fall of Jerusalem, after the fall of the temple in A.D. 70. Absolutely I'm saying that. And if you've been around recently, we did that whole teaching on preterism, which teaches that the fall was the fulfillment of Revelation in A.D. 70. Preterism also teaches, by the way, that the book of Revelation has to have been written before the fall of Jerusalem. Before, prior to AD 70. The only way Revelation could be fulfilled in that would be if it was written before it. Unless you're of the camp that believes, no, it was written after it, looking back to it, and there's nothing prophetic about it at all. Both camps are wrong. Rick, you sound a little sure of yourself. I am. I am. I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it. 
beginning the attempt to date the book of Revelation earlier than the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70 is driven by agenda and not history. And we need to be able to pick those things out. Because there are a lot of things taught in Christianity today that are agenda-driven, not scripture-driven, and not history-driven. And all you have to do really is ask the question, what does the Bible literally say about it? What happened that we know for sure in history? If you can answer those two questions, you can knock out all kinds of heretical teachings, all kinds of teachings that may not be heretical, but they're certainly off to the side that are not taking the Bible at face value. The pre-AD 70 date falls apart when you begin to truly consider it historically. When talking about dating the book of Revelation before the fall of Jerusalem, it falls apart historically. How do we know this? We've mentioned this man before in our studies. His name is Irenaeus. Irenaeus is uh, considered an early church father. We still have writings from Irenaeus. The man lived in A.D. 120 to A.D. 202, 202. So from 120 to 202, this is when Irenaeus lived. He was a student of another person we mentioned, a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp. Polycarp, who was bishop of Smyrna and was martyred himself in Smyrna. We talk about that back in Revelation chapter 2 in that study. But he had a disciple named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple or student directly of John himself, John the Revelator, John the Apostle, John the author of this book. So Irenaeus was only one person removed from John, taught by the man who was taught by John. And Irenaeus, writing about the identification of Antichrist, said the following, and I quote, We will not incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist. For if it were necessary that his name be distinctly revealed in the present time, it would not have been or it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. Who is that? John. Okay. He goes on and says, listen closely, for that was seen not a very long time ago, but almost in our day, toward the end of Domitian's reign. We have a time signature right there, a time stamp as to the writing of Revelation. Based on the words of Irenaeus, he says, John received the revelation at a time, and again I quote, not very long ago, almost in our day, when did Irenaeus live? 120 A.D. So close to 120 A.D., he said, almost in our day, a time not long ago, toward the end of Domitian's reign. So we know at least close to when the book of Revelation was written. It was toward the end of Domitian's reign. So all we have to do is now go to history. When did Domitian reign in Rome? 81 A.D. to 96 A.D. Which means the book of Revelation could not have been written before 81 at the earliest. And it also, Irenaeus tells us, was at the end of Domitian's reign. So we're talking mid-90s, which is exactly what fits with the book itself. John being, uh, you know, on exiled on Patmos, which is what Domitian did during his reign, was exiling people to these small Greek islands. So again, you put scripture together with history, and it begins to knock some of these, these other confusing views right out of the way. Now, there wasn't a temple in Jerusalem when John received and wrote the Revelation. There hasn't been one in Jerusalem since A.D. 70. There wasn't one in Jerusalem, by the way, when Cheryl and I were there in January. Just, you know, so you know, I looked for it. It wasn't there. But there must, there must, there must be a temple in Jerusalem during the Tribulation. 
Because here we are at the midpoint of the tribulation. John is told, go and measure the temple. Revelation 11.1 assumes the presence of the temple. Now, we're going to take a little parenthetical study tonight. We're going to step back for a minute between verses 1 and 2. Here's your parentheses. We're going to study a bit and look at and consider a quick review of the temple. Just let me see a show of hands, and I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, I should know this, or I don't know this, or whatever. But how many of you, if given a quiz tonight, could write down the temples in Israel's history, and where they fell, and who built them? Cheryl can. You know why? Because I asked her this week. <laughs> and we talked about it. And I almost, I thought, well, maybe we could just, you know, skip on by this and just go right on to verse 2. This is too important, gang. I absolutely believe that every Christian should have this under their belt. We should be able to know when the temples were, how many temples there were, and what the point of those temples were. So we're going to do that tonight. A quick review of the Jerusalem temples. So you may want to jot these down. If you're a note taker, if not, you want to just burn this into your brain. It would be great if we could all walk out of here being able to say, okay, the first temple was, and here's the answer to that, the first temple was Solomon's temple. Before Solomon's temple, there was not a temple built in Jerusalem. Solomon's was the first. You may recall in your Bible stories that David wanted to build it himself. David had a great passion for building the temple. After everything settled down in David's tumultuous life, and it was a tumultuous life, when there was finally a sense of peace in Jerusalem, and David was on the throne, and David himself had a wonderful house, he began to think, you know... God's house is still in a tent. It's still in that tabernacle. After all this time, through the entire reign of King Saul, prior to that, through, through the reign of all the judges, through the conquest in the book of Joshua, all the way now up to David's time, the tabernacle was still the house of the Ark of the Covenant. And so David says, it's not right. God should have a house. We should have a place, a permanent place, here in Jerusalem for the, the Ark of the Covenant. For the mercy seat, and for the, the lampstand and the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and all the furniture therein, this should have a permanent place. Starting to heat up a bit now? Okay, you know what? Karen is really getting hot. <laughs> and I'm right with you, sister. Can I hear an amen? Thank you. So we'll just crank that thing off, and the rest of you, I, I'm telling you, I've got a theory on this, and, and I, I've seen it to work. If people are hot, they start going. <laughs> But if they're cold, they may shiver a bit, but they're with me. So, let's be cold and into the Word. <laughs> so the Word warm us up. The first temple was Solomon's temple. Now, David wanted to build that temple himself, but before he could do it, God said, you can't. David, you're a man of war. You've got blood on your hands, and a man with blood on his hands cannot be the man who builds my temple. But you know what's great? Before David could even feel a slight pang of disappointment, God did something wonderful. And he does the same thing with us. You ever been in that place where you truly wanted to do something for the Lord, but your own past wouldn't allow it? Maybe something you did in the past. Some situation where you feel, oh, because of this, I can never do that for the Lord. I can never be in the place for the Lord I'd like to be because of my history. It's just, that won't let me be there. Listen, I want you to be encouraged because David was in the same place. A man of war, a man with blood on his hands, a great military commander, great king for Israel. But he had so much blood on his hands he could not build God's temple, which was his greatest desire. But God turns it around on David and says, hey, you can't build me a house, but I'll build you one. 
I'll build you a house, David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. The very thing David wanted to do for God, God says, I'm going to do for you, David. This is how gracious our Lord is. He turns it on us and says, I'm going to make, you know, you've got a past, but I'm going to make your future absolutely grand and glorious. By the way, the Bible even indicates that during the millennial reign of Christ, David himself will reign again in Jerusalem. Did you know that? That it's entirely possible, and I'm not going to say absolute, but the scriptures indicate that David will be like a right-hand man to Jesus, that David himself will be back during that time of the millennium in Jerusalem. Wow. What an amazing God we have. So Solomon is the one then who comes along and he built the first temple in Jerusalem around 1050 B.C. Solomon built that temple and it was into that temple that the Shekinah glory of God came. Shekinah, it's just that word. You may have heard it used a lot in Christian circles. You won't find the word Shekinah in the Bible. But the word Shekinah just indicates the cloud of glory. You will find that in the Bible. That when God enters that temple, Solomon's temple, it's awesome. The cloud just filled up and God's glory, you know, just almost shook the temple. It was so full. Back 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 tells us the following. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Awesome. On the dedication day, Solomon's there. The people are all there and the temple is ready to be dedicated. Solomon prays this phenomenal prayer. We'll get to it at some point in the future of our studies, Lord willing. But as they're all there and Solomon prays this prayer, well then here comes the glory of the Lord. And he fills up the temple and it's just awesome and the priest can't even serve. They have to get out of there. It's so thick with the presence of the glory of the Lord. That's the first temple. It will be the only temple to hold God's glory. No temple after Solomon's temple ever had the Shekinah glory of God. We'll see that in just a moment. But here's the sad part of this story. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10. For it was this temple, Solomon's temple, that not only received the filling of the glory of God in that awesome moment on that dedication day, it was this same temple that sadly would see the departure of the glory of God. And we read about it in Ezekiel chapter 10, beginning about verse 1. Ezekiel 10, verse 1. We're going to kind of skip through this chapter a little bit. I want to show you a couple things here. Ezekiel the prophet is writing in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse, and I was getting this vision of heaven, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone, in appearance resembling a throne, appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered into my sight, the city being Jerusalem. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered. And watch this, the cloud filled the inner court. Verse 4, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple and the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord right there we've just seen some movement from the inner court the glory moves now lifts from the inner court and moves to the outer court of the temple skip on down to verse 18 
Verse 18 tells us, as the story continues, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Verse 19, When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the Lord, the Lord, glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. So now he's moved from the court out to the gate. God is bit by bit. The glory of the Lord is bit by bit in chapter 10 of Ezekiel moving from the innermost port of the temple, Solomon's temple, to the outside. It continues on, chapter 11, verse 22. Tells us then... The cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Verse 23, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. You've just read from Ezekiel's perspective as he watched and the glory departed from that first temple. It's a tragic thing. We can't even grasp the significance, the depth of what this would have meant for Ezekiel to watch. It must have caused weeping, at least a heartbreak for him to see this happening, that God is pulling out. This is at a time of great uh, tumult for the Jewish people. It was 586 B.C. And during the third invasion of Israel, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple on the 9th of Av, the 9th of the month of Av, which would be roughly equivalent to our August. The ninth of Av was when the temple, the first temple, was destroyed. By the way, it would be the ninth of Av when the second temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. Which is why today Jews celebrate Tisha B'Av, which is that day mourning the loss of those two temples, both destroyed on the exact same day, several hundred years apart. Now, Solomon's temple was built by Solomon, desired by David, designed by David, but built by Solomon. God's glory resided in that temple for a long period of time, but then departed. That's the first temple. His glory never resided in another temple in Jerusalem again. Never has since. That moves us to the second temple. The second temple happened after the return of the exiles. They were exiled in 586 B.C. And after 536 B.C., the Babylonian exiles began to return. Now, actually, 70 years went by from the beginning of their exile to the end of their exile, as God predicted, as he prophesied, as he told them it would. But after 536, the exiles began to return. They had some priests, Joshua and Ezra, and a man by the name of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel is the one who tends to be connected with the second temple, but all three of these guys were there, a part of it, and they returned and they built now a second temple. Look in your Bibles in the book of Ezra. Ezra, where are you, Ezra? And Ezra actually is earlier. You might think of placing it later with the, with the minor prophets. It's uh, a little bit earlier, just after uh, Chronicles. Book of Ezra, uh, chapter 3, when you get there. Ezra, chapter 3, and verse 8. Now again, this is at a point, historically, the Babylonian exiles, they were exiled in 586. Now they've come back to Jerusalem, and they've begun the process of rebuilding. They're rebuilding the temple. This will be the second temple. Ezra, chapter 3, verse 8. 
Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtol, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers and the priests and the Levites and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Those of you studying in Numbers know that that was prescribed. They needed to be 20 and over. Okay, So they began to get their work together, to, to recreate and to rebuild these things. And then Jeshua, verse 9, with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and the brothers of the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout, because they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It was a great day, yet... Verse 12, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far Away. Why were they weeping? Because the second temple was pathetic by comparison to Solomon's. Once it got laid, once it got built, the foundation was there. When they looked at it, they thought, we have lost the glory. And truly they had. Because as I said before, the glory of God would not enter the second temple. Now Herod comes along. And this is what we would call, you have the first temple, Solomon's temple. You have the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. Or you could say the temple built by the exiles. Now we come to the second temple 2.0. Okay? It's a new version of the second temple. It is not a third temple. It's still the second temple, but it's Herod's temple. Herod comes along, and in his way of doing things architecturally and wanting to appease both Romans and Jews, he says, for the Jews, I'm going to build a, a new temple. And there was quite a bit of controversy about it because the second temple was already there, built by the exiles. And think about it, those of you who have been in, in church very long, changing anything in a church building structure is very difficult to do. You're going to take the cross off the wall? But it's been there like 20 years. Okay? And so Herod comes along to get this temple. He wants to rebuild the whole thing. There's controversy and so he says, okay, then we won't rebuild it, we're going to refurbish it. We'll make it better than it is, but we'll, we'll maintain the structure of this temple. We'll just kind of add on to it and clean it up and fix it. And so this renovation began and stone by stone, so as not to interrupt the sacrifices and all that was going on in the temple, stone by stone, one stone at a time, Herod began the process of building what some have called the third temple, but truly which isn't the third temple, it's just renovating the second temple. This happened starting around 19 B.C. So just a couple of decades before Jesus comes along, this brilliant architect, megalomaniac, King Herod, he took apart and remodeled the temple piece by piece. And it wasn't completely finished for 75 years. That's how long it took Herod to do his work. And it tells us a couple of things that might be worth taking note of, of this second temple 2.0. It was still under construction during the days of Jesus. 
So as Jesus walked on the earth, because it began around 20 years before Jesus, and it took 75 years to build, we know this thing was still under construction when Jesus was here. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus, looking at the temple, says, Hey, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now he was talking, of course, we know, about the temple of his body. But the Jews took it literally, and they said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? So at that point... The temple, which would take 75 years to build, had been worked on for 46 years. It only stood fully complete for 14 years before the Romans would come and destroy this second temple, also again on Tisha B'Av, on the 9th of Av, just as it happened the first time. And Matthew chapter 24, verse 1 says that Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. By the way, we're going to do some of this Bible study in Jerusalem on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, and it's stunning to be there and read these things at that time. It's going to happen. Anyway, Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus said to him, all the disciples pointing out how wonderful and marvelous, look at the work Herod's doing, and, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And if you saw in, in some of the slides I showed recently, you can see some of those stones that Jesus said would not rest on another, tossed down from the Temple Mount, only recently excavated in Jerusalem. Exactly what Jesus said happened. Apparently, by the way, when General Titus conquered the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the order was given by Titus not to destroy the temple. He said, don't destroy it. But something happened. As the temple burned, and you might say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've heard that the temple burned. Wasn't it made of stone? How does that work? It's very interesting. I just read this last week. Jerusalem stone? Jerusalem stone is porous. And what happens when things around it heat up, as in the wooden structures and things that would have been in the temple, Jerusalem stone gets hot and it's porous and there's literally water inside the porousness of these stones and that water would boil and would literally cause these stones to come apart, to explode, to burn. And so that actually happened. The temple did burn. But, the, but what happened is it began to burn, and the, and the soldiers were setting fire to all kinds of things. The gold in the temple began to melt. It was so intense, that heat coming off of those, of those stones that themselves were like a giant oven. And as the gold began to melt, it began dripping down into the stones. Well, the natural inclination of greedy man, the soldiers of Titus began wanting to get to that gold and began literally tearing the stones out, ripping them out by, bit by bit, and it became a free-for-all, throwing the stones off of the Temple Mount and destroying them until not one stone was left upon another, exactly as Jesus said would happen. Not one stone. And it is cool. It is cool to see those stones, some of the remnant of those stones, piled up in heaps where they were chucked off the top of the Temple Mount so long ago, over 1,900 years. Amazing. Anyway, I just get chills. i got to go back. I can't wait. A little commercial. If you want to go to Jerusalem with us, if you want to see Israel with us, now's the time. We've got registration forms. You've got to talk to me or talk to Sharon because this is a trip you don't want to miss. And again, beg, borrow or even steal, if you have to, to go on this trip. So today, all that's left, all that's left of Herod's temple, which is the second temple 2.0, it's the second temple refurbished, all that's left there is the 35-acre square platform, this retaining wall also that goes up and holds that platform on Mount Moriah. It's called the Temple Mount. There is no place on earth 
compared to this 35-acre rectangle, no place on earth is a hotter spot than the Temple Mount today. It is the cause, gang, that little piece of acreage is the cause of everything we see going on in the Middle East. It is the cause of the war on terror. The battle for the Temple Mount is at the heart of everything. That at the heart of Jerusalem, at the heart of Israel, in the Middle East, and the Muslims want it out. They don't want it to exist there at all. And the Jews obviously, especially the more orthodox of the Jews, want to see a third temple built. They desire it greatly. 